1971, the Nixon White House created a covert unit called the Plumbers to conduct special leak investigations, an initiative that eventually spawned the Watergate break-in. Many of us assume that shadowy government gumshoe squads, operating like the plumbers entirely without any Justice Department or congressional oversight, went away with the demise of Nixon. But this week, our Yahoo News colleague Jana Winter discovered the existence of another secret investigations unit, this time inside the Department of Homeland Security, that was snooping into the private lives of journalists, as well as congressional staff members, NGO workers, and others, pulling phone records, travel records, personal contacts, and much else, all under the guise of cultivating them to help with a legitimate government investigation into, of all things, cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The secret unit launched an initiative called Operation Whistle Pig that targeted journalists. Informally, it called itself Wolf for way out there in left field, a worthy successor to the plumbers. We'll talk to Winter, the reporter who broke the story, and to an ACLU lawyer about why this is so alarming on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So when I was a young reporter at the Washington Post many years ago, working for Bob Woodward, who discovered the existence of the plumbers, he used to talk about the holy shit story, the story that would shake things up, that would expose some outrageous conduct that nobody knew about. That was sort of what we all strove to do when we worked for Bob Woodward. I have to say, I think uh, Jana Winter's story on Operation Whistle Pig qualifies completely legitimately as a holy shit story. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, although I will say that one of the things that's striking about this story is that the people who are involved in these abuses, there's no other word to describe them than abuses, the main subject of the story I guess, aptly named Jeffrey Rambo. <laughs> you can't make that up, by the way. <laughs> you can't Rambo. make this shit up. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't seem to, you know, regard this in any way as holy shit. And, and he says this fact, is what we opposite. do all the time. He says that. All yeah. the people that she quotes is this is the status quo. Yeah. This is what we do all the time. There are no guidelines. There are no parameters. There are no rules. We just, we are the guidelines, one of them said. So, you know, the thing that, you know, I, I kept thinking about after some of the big revelations, warrantless wiretapping, the 215 meta, telephone metadata program, what would you hear from the government? You'd say, well, you know, okay, but there haven't been any abuses, right? I mean, you know, this is a program that, you know, is, you know, carefully monitored and give us an example of people's civil liberties being violated. Well, the point is that when you give people the option, you know, if, if they're, you know, if they have access to all this information, eventually when bureaucracies get this kind of power and access to this kind of information, there are going to be abuses. And this is an example of that, I think. 
By the way, Danny, this is so much standard operating procedure that all of the people who were involved from the Department of Homeland Security in this and who were referred potentially for criminal prosecution by DHS's inspector general are still at their jobs. And to, to go to your, your point about like, what are the abuses? This story, which is almost kind of cinematic in its qualities, features a moment where a reporter from Politico is standing on a street in Washington, D.C. after a essentially an initial unsolicited meeting with a government agent saying to him, are you trying to blackmail me? I mean, that is the sort of stuff that was going on out of this unit. And there's every reason to believe that literally tens of thousands of rank and file Department of Homeland Security personnel have access to these databases to allow them to continue to do exactly what this story details. One other example from the from the story at the end of the story that reflects what you were just talking about, this being standard operating procedure, even more than standard operating procedure. Jeffrey Rambo, who is no longer working in that unit, he's back to being a, you know, a, a border patrol uh, agent in, in, in California doing cases, I But guess. in no way disciplined for anything he did here. And not only in no way disciplined, but he got an award, a plaque that's hanging that says, in honor and recognition of your dedication to the National Targeting Center Counter Network Division in 2017. And when he was given that award, uh, I think his boss, Dan White, or some of the people he worked with specifically (laughs) mentioned Operation Whistle Pig for that award. So there you go. And in that instance, you referenced, uh, Victoria, the aforementioned Rambo actually approached uh, and got to this meeting with the journalist by under a phony name, pretending he was somebody other than who he was not working for the government, which I find pretty outrageous on its face uh, that um, government agents, look, when you're the FBI and I'm being investigated for a crime, sure. But Nobody suspected Ali Watkins, then with Politico, of having committed a crime. She wasn't under investigation. And one last delicious detail from this story, and you're right, it is an amazing read. When Rambo has his furtive meeting in a Washington bar with Ali Watkins under an assumed name, he pays for the drinks. He's drinking Whistle Pig Manhattans. Uh, which is uh, why it became known as uh, Operation Whistlepig. He pays the bill. Ollie Watkins, of course, becomes very suspicious of, of who this person is, but she doesn't know his real name. So good reporter that she is, she goes back to the bar and she gets the receipt from the credit card bill. <laughs> it's got Rambo's name. It's got Rambo's name. And But wait a second, but here's the, here's the beautiful part. Rambo is outraged that the bar (laughs) turned over his private information. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, How delicious. You know, you mentioned warrantless wiretapping. I don't know if you remember the story I did many years ago at Newsweek about the um, investigation into Thomas Tam, the former Justice Department lawyer. Are you kidding? I fought to put that that, that story on the cover of the magazine. Yeah, but do you remember that this was the guy who actually first leaked to the New York Times the existence of a secret program that 
turned out to be warrantless uh, wiretapping. Uh, but a little quiz here on your memory. I don't know if you remember the name of the FBI agent who was investigating him and hounding him for years. Uh, FBI agent Lawless. So we've gone from <laughs> agent Lawless to agent Rambo. Um, you know, there's some kind of pattern here. Um, anyway, look, there's a lot of really juicy stuff and alarming stuff that we should talk about. So we've got Jana Winters standing by. So let's get to it. We are now joined by our Yahoo News colleague, Jana Winter, the author of this wild, mind-blowing story on Operation Whistle Pig. Jana, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So where does one begin? There are so many aspects of this that are just so wild. Why don't you just start by telling us what is or what was Operation Whistlepig. Well, Operation Whistlepig was an investigation by this super secretive unit of uh, Border Patrol of Customs and Border Protection that looked at. It was basically investigating a reporter, Allie Watkins, who's now at the Times, and her relationship with then Senate staffer James Wolfe, and under the auspices of potentially reaching out to them for reaching out to her and other reporters for something completely unrelated about forced labor. They took it upon themselves to run a whole bunch of journalist names through a whole bunch of government databases and were essentially investigating what Rambo's supervisor called the personal connections of journalists. And while that particular operation has ended, I want to be super clear that they still do this today. So let me just be be clear on this. This is a unit of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security. And it's a unit that was known as WOLF, if I read your story correctly, or called itself WOLF or Way Out in Left Field. But their charge was not to investigate journalists. It was to investigate forced labor in the Democratic Republic of Congo to determine if uh, forced labor is being used to make consumer goods in China so that if that can be proven, the uh, U.S. government can put sanctions on whoever is using forced labor. I am still puzzled and scratching my head about how a forced labor investigation in Congo leads an agent named Rambo, and folks, you can't make any of this up, to start investigating journalists. Yeah, I mean, basically you said it, Mike, that's what happened. We go from looking at forced labor being used to mine cobalt in the Democratic of Con- Republic of Congo to carrying out full-on investigations of a whole bunch of different journalists. And if you think that's a, a weird way to get there, you would be correct. Well, let's, <laughs> let's talk about that chain. So Rambo and his uh, bosses are looking to bring attention to their initiative investigating forced labor. And one of the ways they think they can do that is by getting prominent journalists 
to write about forced labor issues. So they start reaching out to a number of them, including Allie Watkins, including Martha Mendoza, an AP reporter who won the Pulitzer Prize reporting on these issues, and others. But what they decide they need to do is to vet these reporters to make sure that they are, what, trustworthy, people that they can work with, and it it goes from there. Yeah. I mean, this is, there's Operation Whistlepig, which is what the story largely details. But in a larger sense, this particular unit at CBP's Counter Network Division would regularly reach out to reporters all the time. They reached out to a former New York Times reporter on issues related to forced labor and trade, illicit trade, including about wildlife and sort of arms trafficking. And they thought that before they did any outreach or even thought about reaching out to any reporters or really reaching out to anyone, because they did this with other government officials at things like, you know, State Department or NOAA, the weather people, they want to make sure that they could be trusted, that they weren't terrorists, supposedly. So they are involved in some sort of criminal network or whatever. That's their excuse. So in the course of making sure that they really want to contact these people, they investigated the crap out of them, basically. Jana, one thing here. Now, you know, I think, you know, my general attitude is... I don't see it as my job to help the government do its investigations. If the government wants to read my stories or listen to our podcasts and launch investigations, great. But it is pretty uncommon to have anybody from the government call me up and ask me to help them in ways that go beyond what I've already published, which I assume is pretty much the ethos of most journalists. So, Why in the world would these government agents think that they could reach out to journalists and get them to help them with their investigations? Well, there's two parts of this. One, they, I mean, this came down as a tasking from the White House. So they said, come up with some idea about how to gather data that shows that companies are using this forced labor cobalt to make things like iPhones. And so they reached out to people thinking, oh, uh, you know, maybe these journalists who specialize in this, maybe these NGO workers who specialize in this, maybe these other people can help us provide the missing data. Separately, Allie Watkins was a national security reporter, uh, had no history of writing about forced labor whatsoever. And they wanted to use her because she had access and buzz and she was writing about sort of buzzy, zeitgeisty articles at the time related to Russia and the leak investigations and and the FBI, then sort of the beginning of the FBI's investigation into Trump's Russia ties for the campaign. So for her, they wanted to use Allie Watkins to push out stories that were like not actually true, that would overstate U.S. law enforcement capabilities to, as convoluted and crazy as it sounds, just bear with me, to trigger some sort of change in shipping patterns. So basically these companies or countries like China read Ali Watkins stories in Politico. They say, oh, the US is onto us. Let's alter our shipping patterns to get cobalt out of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that will provide the confirmation we need to hit these companies with sanctions. So there's a lot of problems with this, obviously. 
But one of them is that they just plucked Allie Watkins out of sort of nowhere and thought that they could use her to push out these fake stories. And to be very clear, she did not know any of this was happening. And they never even asked her when she met with Rambo in this undercover capacity that he arranged this meeting, he never brought up forced labor once. So when the uh, DHS Department of Inspector General launched their investigation into all of this, uh, they interviewed Allie and they said, well, did you ever hear about this forced labor plan? And she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So it obviously, one, never got to that stage, but two, it obviously shouldn't, gone, shouldn't have gone any of these places. It's a completely, it's just crazy as it seems, is basically, I have no explanation other than this is what we know happened in this order and none of it still makes sense. So, John, I, just tell the Ollie Watkins uh, story because that's kind of the thread She's the main sort of subject of Operation Whistlepig. And so tell us about how they get onto her, what they do, and then that first furtive meeting at a Washington speakeasy in June 2017. Right. So in the course of identifying this plan to find more data on what companies are using forced labor, specifically to mine cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo, they put together a list of reporters they want to contact. And this border patrol agent detailed to the counter network division at the time is appointed lead on this. So he sees, he goes on Twitter, he sees that Ali uh, had published a story that morning about sort of about Russia and leak investigations and some had cited a bunch of anonymous counterintelligence officials. And Rambo saw that her story was getting a bunch of attention. So he thought, you know, quote, okay, I'll use Ali Watkins. So he runs her through the databases, the same databases he runs Martha Mendoza through, the same databases he runs State Department officials through, the same full-on databases. He looks at her travel records and sees that she has a trip to Gitmo. And that trip is sandwiched between two trips with an older gentleman, someone more than 30 years older than her. And he flags that as suspicious and he seeks to find out who is this older man that is traveling with her. Why? Because that is what he's doing. And so he keeps digging in. He identifies him. He says, who is James Wolfe? James Wolfe ends up being the then director of security for the Senate Intelligence Committee. And Jeff Rambo thinks that he is onto something in terms of, oh, she's receiving classified information from this person specifically. So he arranges a meeting. He emails her under an alias, Jack Bentley, named was after- Jack his... Jack Bentley Esquire, if I recall correctly. That is true. Right. I'm sorry, yeah. I don't mean to, to ignore the Esquire. Jack Bentley, well, he has two, two lovely beagles, the father and son beagles, Jack and Bentley, who I met. And that is where the name comes from. But he emails Allie saying, you know, suggesting that he is a government official who might provide information to her which is something I should say is not out of the norm of the kind of emails that reporters get. But it is out of the norm to get a email from a government agent who's using a phony alias to entice you to talk to them. Yes, I but mean, of course she doesn't know that. He doesn't know that though, right. <laughs> right. I mean, it, all of this is weird on his end. I, I think I'll defend her uh, up to this point in terms of things that like, I probably would have been like, all right, let's meet. I don't know. So they meet up that night at a bar before he meets up with, with Allie Watkins. It is clear from the, the documents that we've reviewed that he is 100% going there. And from what he told me, frankly, 
that he is going there to determine if she has been receiving classified information from someone that she is in a romantic relationship with. Because to him, that would make her not trustworthy. So he meets her, sends her these text messages to meet her at this speakeasy that doesn't exist anymore, but in Washington, D.C. They get to the bar and he starts firing off questions about, you know, who are your sources? Have you ever done anything to not protect them? Have you ever um, had an inappropriate relationship with sources? He has, of course, by the way, hours before meeting her, reached out to an old contact of his at the FBI, who's now at headquarters working counterterrorism. And he says, oh, I have something for you I think is in your swim lane. Get back to me. And so he is meeting with Allie. She is definitely spooked, I think, very early in the conversation, but they continue to talk for four hours, moving to various different places. At one point, they're standing on a street corner of the completely empty, like desolate, you know, DuPont Circle. And he says, you know, have you ever had an inappropriate relationship with a source? Have you ever done various things? He's, in the meantime, telling her things about her life that she thinks is not public. And she's wondering, you know, why the hell this guy knows these things? Um, Why does he know about all of my international travel? Why does he know that I lived in this one place at the Jersey Shore for like a month? Things that would not necessarily be, or or 100% would not be public record for anyone who was just randomly, you know, Googling her, for example. So at some point, according to her later testimony and to his and to what he's told me, he confronts her about James Wolfe. And she admits that she's having some sort of relationship with him. But she's very clear with him. She says, you know, I never got information from that person. And Jeff Rambo, in another one of his aha moments, he thinks, he turns his cell phone around dramatically to show it her um, and says, you know, he's married. This is his wife. He showed her an ex-wife. It wasn't even the right wife. Yeah. So she leaves the... And then he has a final tip for her, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He says, don't book travel together. Um, They had uh, book travel together, which is how they sort of were initially identified, how James Wolfe came up to begin with in her records, which is also... He also paid on his... um, (laughs) He paid for the bill at the first bar with his government credit card, which will come back to hit him like pretty badly. I think one of the fascinating things about your article is not only does it kind of reveal this bizarre disinformation slash PR campaign that the Customs and Border Protection has going, and probably not just in this particular Mm -hmm. environment, but it also shows the extraordinary amount of information and databases they have on Americans. And I thought it might be useful to actually go through the databases and information that this guy collected on her and her family, right? He also Uh, researched her family. Yeah. He defends that by saying that he had to figure out if James Wolfe was a family member. But later on, he will assign contractors from Deloitte um, to, to probe her Facebook, including her domestic travel. And they also find stuff on her family then, which is a lot. Okay. But for databases... For databases, they've got, they have one database, which is essentially all international travel, right? So that's that. So um, maybe not too surprising to Americans that that sort of stuff is tracked or collected because you go through, you know, passport control and it all gets scanned. But it's also not just like where you're traveling to. It's who else was booked using the same credit card, who you sat next to, um, what contact information you use to book that reservation. And then they will take those phone numbers, those email addresses, those credit card numbers, and run them through databases as 
far ranging as, you know, the Treasury Department, um, FinCEN, which is used to track organized crime across borders. They used her. So, and you, so your financial transactions, they're yes. also digging in on, yeah. right? So they're looking okay. at financials. They are also looking at all these different State Department bases, databases, like the consular ones when you apply for a passport. So they took her photo from there. They took her email address from there. They took her old address where, you know, when you apply for a passport, you give all of your information. So then they ran those phone numbers and those email addresses and those addresses through um, another State Department database, which is text, which is basically sort of like interactions at the border. And also with terrorists, they ran them through the terrorist screening database in itself. And they found a hit for her, which was Ariana Huffington, which is still not explained. Um, wait, 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 wait. Okay, wait, wait. No, no. A hit I, I, under let's, a let's terrorist. Go, let's let's go back. To, let's go to Ariana Ari- Huffington wait, wait, wait. later. Yeah, Hold yeah. on. Let's 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 finish this this <laughs> line. Let's finish this line, okay? Because we'll we'll get back to Ariana. No, Huffington. you can't just but, throw out Ariana no, no, we'll Huffington we'll in the terrorist so, database. So then, let's talk about Deloitte. Wait, I'm not done with databases. Hold on. Um, Okay, so they also ran her and again through all of these other people, people at NGOs, people at different government agencies, and also members of Congress and their staffers, um, by the way, through databases like Domex, which is a super controversial program that basically seizes the entire digital content of someone's phone at the border. So it makes a copy of everything from your encrypted messages, your social media. Let's pause and put a point on that. So... Customs and Border Protection has the ability when you are going through a border, which incidentally stretches to about 100 miles from what we think of as our actual border and incorporates up to maybe 200 million people, 200 million Americans. Right. So they can they can seize your phone, force you to unlock it and then download all the information off your phone or your computer. Is that that's Domex? Uh, Yes. Um, At minimum. Okay. Yes, it, it's likely a bit worse than that. But yes, that is what I will responsibly say at this moment. Um, okay, so they, stay tuned for further reporting. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yes, it, correct. Uh, so they ran, say, her phone number through that database to see if it matched up with any. Um, it's designed to look for contacts between people other than, you know, I called you directly. So because it captures, you know, your whole phone contacts. So they ran people like the AP's Martha Mendoza. They ran her numbers through Domex as well. Most importantly, I think, and most egregiously, is that they ran all of these people through, all these reporters, and more reporters than I'm sure we know about right now, but who are kind of coming out of the woodwork um, with, with emails and texts to me being like, am I part of this? I met with these people. But through this internal DHS employee directory of sorts that was built to identify sort of like corrupt border patrol type people. But there's no other usage possible for running a reporter's information through these employee databases than to identify their DHS sources. Like full stop, that's what that is. And there just is no, there is no terrorism connection. There is no white collar crime. There is no nothing. That's it. They use these databases and we know that they did because they fully admitted it in their testimony. And the guy who said, what? It's like a Google search. Why is this bad? Is the one who's still running that division today, despite multiple criminal referrals. Finally, let's talk about the Deloitte database, the the Deloitte search that they also did. Right. So um, Jeff Rambo reached out to Deloitte contractors who are assigned to the counter network division to do things like this and said, here is her name. Here are a bunch of selectors. And by that, I mean her cell phone number, her former addresses and email she was in college. Um. Uh, her social security number, things like that. And they said, find her social media. We want anything you can find. 
And so they came back with, oh, here's a trip that we know, you know, she took with, with James Wolfe to Spain. Here's a bunch of posts from there. And they took screenshots of, uh, of her posting just, oh, I'm in Spain having a good time on my vacation, just her face. And forward it back to Rambo and Rambo replies, gracias. And they continue to do these like link analysis. They put together this, what can only be described as sort of like a very intense sort of tree where it shows phone numbers and social media connections between people, including like, this is how Ali Watkins is connected to her brother. Like, yes, that's her brother. Um, that should not be the subject of, of the government's uh, money or time, obviously. But Jana, that's also just getting back to Ariana Huffington for a second. That's how we get to Ariana Huffington, right? Not because we think she has terrorist connections, but because oh, there correct. was there's information on Ollie Watkins' phone because she used to work at Huffington Post, right? Right. So they yeah. made a connection, right? Um, so in searching Ollie Watkins through these terrorism databases, they right back, oh, LOL, like the owner of the Huffington Post has three phones and one email connection to the terrorist screening database. And to be clear, Ariana has, has told us herself and we fully believe her, she is not um, you know, a terrorist, nor does she have <laughs> just to be very, you know, um, not suggesting. But the way the way this the link analysis works is they put in a telephone number, which then has a connection to another telephone number, which then has a connection to so, a third so telephone email number that someone had once or an email. Right. A, right. So right. so this it is, is like way a field. Totally of attenuated. Oh, absolutely. Um, and no. Yeah, exactly. So uh, actually, uh, uh, hold on. At, at this point, I think it might be worth just quoting some of what Mr. Rambo, Jeff Rambo, told investigators, and we want to get to the investigation about all this later, but when asked about this, he says, quote, when a name comes across your desk, you run it through every system you have access to. That's just status quo. That's what everyone does. When you say you vet someone, you vet them. There's no parameters on what that means. Vet the reporters you use, vet them through our systems. I vet them no different than I vet a terrorist. Yep. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> and the larger point here that I was going to uh, get to is, is that, and what's, what's so shocking about this story, is that there are, he's right, there are no guidelines, there are no parameters. And his boss, a man named Dan White, says, and I'm quoting from your story, first of all, this is, gets back to what how Isakoff started off uh, this conversation, referring to this uh, initiative as WOLF, capital W-O-L-F, way out in left field. And what he says is, we are pushing the limits, and so there is no norm, there is no guidelines, we are the ones making the guidelines. And how is it possible that a low-level uh, border patrol agent has access to the most sens some of the most sensitive guidelines in the government, can rifle through them, trawl through them, and there are no guidelines. I think it's, you know, I'm not defending what, what Rambo did here, but it's super clear that he had the authorization he, by, you know, at every single step of the way, by his boss, Dan White, by people above Dan White, who are still at CBP, who are still, you know, in this chain of command. And this division, counter-network division, was created shortly before all of this went down and still exists 
the whole point of it is to free themselves from the bureaucracy of having to have guidelines governing such things. So the idea is to put all these databases in one place, the country's most sensitive, classified, unclassified of every kind of, literally every kind of possible database that the government has, and to put everyone together in one room so there is no issue about sharing or what we do with them. I mean, this is why this exists. And this is why Dan White, Rambo's boss, was so offended by the OIG investigators asking for policies or procedures. And this is a moment that's very much him being like, we are the policies and procedures. What are you talking about? Because that's accurate. And, you know, they found reason for criminal prosecution to prosecute Dan White specifically with the same exact charges that Allie Watkins and boyfriend got hit with and went to jail for. And the Eastern District of Virginia said, you know what, we can't really prosecute them because there aren't really any policies or procedures governing that division's work. So no rules, no crime. Well, but it recalls to mind what Michael Kinsley once said, which is that the real scandal is what is legal. Right. right? I mean, this isn't we look at things. I feel like, you know, there's so much about insider threats, uh, the possibility of a Russian spy or Chinese spy sort of working for the government, accessing these databases. But this is such a different thing. This is legal. This is authorized. And this is completely on every step of the way. Jeff Rambo gets his boss to sign off. And Dan White says, no, actually, you know, instead of handing this over to the FBI, why don't we look for her sources within DHS? Why don't we make this investigation even bigger? And they did this in writing. Can you imagine what they didn't put in writing? I mean, this is all in emails. Janet, you said this all began with a request from the Trump White House. Do we know who in the Trump White House requested this cobalt mining investigation? We don't. We know that this all began at a meeting at the National Security Council where that was attended by Rambo's colleagues and that they came back and they said, we have a job. I don't have the names. If anyone who is listening has the names or is those yeah. names, um, please, uh, you know. By the way, one of the weird things about this is... One of the weird things? Okay. One of the many, <laughs> many weird Continue. things about this is you said that the whole purpose of the investigation into cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo was to identify firms in China that were using forced labor to get that cobalt for things like iPhones. But doesn't Apple and other American companies depend on the same cobalt from the Democratic Republic right, yeah, of Congo? No, this was about Congo. U.S. companies. This was about, to be clear, it was about U.S. companies Okay. Or, or we think from what we know. I mean, honestly. So wait, the sanctions would be on U.S. companies right, or on the on Chinese? US companies who were okay. using this to make things using this forced labor cobalt. Like the right. production of these items was in China. It's a legitimate issue, the cobalt mining in Congo. In fact, I think the New York Times has done like a whole series of stories. Right. Uh, well, yeah, it's a totally legitimate it. issue. It's just not yeah. a. It's, it's just not a uh, an excuse or a predicate for spying on journalists on and members of Congress. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So, Jana, here's my question: How'd you get onto this? Um, I'm probably not going to answer that question. Well, I mean, I'm not asking for <laughs> names of sources, but just like, you know, what triggered your interest in uh, in doing this in the first place? I mean, I think everyone knows I'm a big documents person. So I think receiving a easily the craziest, most just holy crap all the time uh, document. Um, I mean, this is this all started with the, the DHS OIG report into the investigation. Right. So basically, after the Allie Watkins, after the prosecution of James Wolfe, 
Something triggers an investigation by the DHS Inspector General into right. so this after, program. The day after Wolf was indicted, the Washington Post ran a story that named Rambo by name and said that he had interrogated Allie Watkins and was trying to, you know, identify her sources and it portrayed him as sort of a rogue agent rogue agent a rogue border patrol agent on this weird quest that had nothing to do with anyone that was not tied to anything where he comes off looking i mean pretty bad in in a different way than i think perhaps he should but that report in the washington post triggered the launch of a joint cbp internal affairs probe and um an investigation by the department of homeland security office of inspector general so And what was the conclusion of that investigation? So after two years of them interviewing one bajillion people and getting emails and memos and all sorts of things from the FBI, from CBP, from circling around this, um, the target of their probe sort of shifted to from Jeff Rambo to his boss, Dan White, who appears to, uh, there's no other way to say it, to have lied repeatedly to investigators about his knowledge of Allie's meet, of the meeting with Allie, about, you know, what happened afterwards. At, at every step along the way, he had also sent emails that they recovered, which was ridiculous and silly, because they say, you know, they're from him saying, do these things um, and place him, you know, at the very beginning of this. So um, at the end of all this, uh, OIG recommends or refers Rambo, his boss, Dan White, and another man, Charlie Ratliff, who was the one doing uh, sort of freelance data reporting probes on members of Congress and refers them all for criminal prosecution. The Eastern District of Virginia declines to prosecute and everyone goes back to work. So there we are. And why? Why did they decline to prosecute? One of the reasons that Mark Little, then chief of uh, the Fraud and Financial Crimes Unit, says to OIG is, well, there were no clear policies and procedures governing Rambo's work or the work of that division. And also, it would make bad jury appeal because the guy that Rambo was investigating, James Wolfe, eventually was indicted. So even though he wasn't indicted on those same things, it would not make for a good jury. Just to clear this up, because he was Wolf was indicted for lying to the FBI about his affair. He was not indicted for leaking classified information to the woman he was having an affair with, Ali Watkins. But I will say that so the FBI was involved in this from the beginning. The FBI has a lot of explaining to do and they have not yet and they need to. And the FBI met with Rambo many times and spoke with him many times shortly after his initial meeting with, or his only meeting with Allie Watkins. And at some point they said, sorry, you know, we're declining to prosecute further. Flash forward to six months later, Rambo's done with his detail in DC. He's back in San Diego and he gets this call from the FBI who had just recently launched their own internal media leaks investigation unit. And then suddenly they were all super interested in everything again. So they make uh, Rambo sign this FBI non-disclosure, classified non-disclosure agreement, according to the OIG report. And he hands over again for like the fifth time, all of her travel records, um, all of the work that the Deloitte contractors had done and stuff like that. So about a month after that, FBI presents James Wolfe with a questionnaire, which 
you're, I think most people know you're not supposed to lie about to, to the FBI. But one of those things was a question very specifically about his relationships with reporters to include Ali Watkins, and specifically, even more than that, his international travel with them. So it is very clear from reading the OIG report and comparing it against James Wolfe's indictment and other court records that the information that Rambo used was helpful, if not the very beginning of their probe and tool. You mentioned that, or you say that the inspector general of DHS recommends for criminal prosecution, but that's turned down because there were no policies and guidelines. Isn't it the job of the inspector general to identify where there has to be policies and guidelines for this sort of activity? And did they? Well, yes and no. Um, I think that I... I personally just have a renewed appreciation for the work of, uh, of OIG, but they, they identified things for potential prosecution that are actual crimes. I mean, James Wolfe went to jail for making false statements. They recommended making false statements charges against Dan White. So in the course of their investigation, they asked OIG, asked CBP, it appears numerous times, uh, to provide any policies or procedures or guidelines governing any of this. And they just straight up did not respond to OIG. Like they just never got back to them. And that is crazy. But OIG can recommend they did. there be, that there oh. be policies and guidelines. They did. Um, yeah, I think that they, uh, from my understanding, I think that they did all the things that, that they should have done or could have done. I don't know. They are not, I asked, obviously I asked them to, to comment on various parts of this, OIG, I mean. And one of the questions I asked them was, are you at all involved in the sort of administrative procedures that take place on the employee's end? Uh, sort of, you know, there was a hearing um, with Rambo over whether he should get his job back, basically. And I presume the same for the other ones. And they say that to maintain their, you know, independence and objectivity, they can't be involved in administrative, you know, procedures and policies and things like that. So referred me to DHS proper. I will also say that DHS headquarters has completely failed to address any aspect of this. And that's not acceptable. We have gone so far above and beyond to get them to even say that there are policies and they refuse to do so. DHS, what is your problem? You need to address this. Absolutely. I should uh, point out the statement from Senator Ron Wyden, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, after your story came out who said, and by the way, he had been trying to get, as I understand it, a copy of this inspector general report and had been unable to do so. Which is crazy you, yeah, you get it. Congress <laughs> doesn't. Another example of the limits of congressional oversight. I'll let uh, Victoria respond to that. And in the talents moment. and the reporting talents <laughs> yeah, of John Winter. Exactly. But, but Wyden's, uh, Wyden's statement on this is... If multiple government agencies were aware of this conduct and took no action to stop it, there needs to be serious consequences for every official involved, and DHS and the Justice Department must explain what actions they are taking to prevent this unacceptable conduct in the future. Yeah, I mean, I hope Wyden gets some answers because DOJ, of course, has not provided us with any. The White House has not provided us with any explanation. All of these agencies are all involved because they took the information that Rambo got from these databases, handed it to the FBI for their use in the leak investigation of James Wolfe. And who, I mean, who else knew? I, we don't even know the extent of, of what they were doing. But I think 
the policy right now seems to be for all government agencies associated with this to just keep their head in the sand. I think that's really not a good idea, guys. Okay, a couple of quick questions. Where is Rambo now? Where is his boss, Dan White, now? And do we have reason to believe that these activities have continued in the Biden administration? Um, Rambo is back at work, working the border as a, you know, just regular field border patrol agent in San Diego. He also has a coffee shop called Storymakers. And what? I mean, the coffee is, it is very good. It does take a while to make, but it is. Isn't it a full-time job being a government border agent? Apparently no. Um, but (laughs) I mean, listen, he, he's good at multitasking. I will say that. Um, I think we know that from, from the start. So I, I, um, his, (laughs) His boss, much more dangerously, is his, what's going on with his boss, Dan White, who runs Team Wolf at um, a counter network division. He is back there running his team. And we know that not only is he still there running this, that his supervisors all the way up the chain of command through assistant director level at CBP are still there. These are not political appointees. We know that this is what they're still doing. This is how the division operates. This is not a, let's just pretend this was a Trump administration thing. This is Biden. Biden, you need to speak out. This is a Biden administration thing. Well, we'll see if they do. But um, in the meantime, I want to recommend all our listeners take a really close read of Jana's story. It is, as I said before, mind-blowing. I should point out, just before we let you go, Jana, that this is your second appearance on Skullduggery. The previous time, you had exposed another secret government program being run by the Postal Service. Remind us what that was and where things stand on that front. I do seem to have developed a little bit of a niche area here, I suppose. If anyone has any other uh, potentially illegal surveillance, um, (laughs) you know, teams and or operations to report to me, please do so. The post office was and probably still is running a their own super secret surveillance operation. Um, There's possibly more more stupidly named called ICOP, which is. They're the name of their internet covert operations program. Uh, last we checked, it was under investigation by GAO, by the post office OIG. I don't know where that is, although I do know that the post office inspector general keeps tweeting out on job hiring posts saying, we need someone to run our investigations unit, which is not um, super, uh, I don't know. Maybe you should apply and go undercover, John. I was just going to say, I'm like, I feel like they list all these qualifications and I'm, I'm pretty good at all of those things. I, I don't know if they're looking for me, but I'm, I'm here to help. <laughs> all right. Government, you hear that? Jenna is here to help you. Jenna, I want to thank you again for, a, uh, for great reporting and a, uh, and a great discussion. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. We are now joined by Hugh Handyside, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's National Security Project. You welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Uh, you are one of those who has found the uh, disclosure of Operation Whistle Pig and this entire program uh, disturbing. Tell us what disturbs you about it and um, what should be done about this. Well, you know, where to start? I, I think it's a really good crystallization of a lot of the kind of 
what can sometimes seem like disparate threads of law enforcement information gathering and watch listing and just this expansion of authority that we've seen in the post 9-11 era. And sometimes those things can seem unrelated, but, uh, but they're, they're not. And this kind of shows how they all can come together in really damaging and disturbing ways. So, you know, I think what can be done about it? I think it, it, it's long past time to sort of unwind this series of really, really explosive, the, the growth that we've seen in information gathering and sharing across the federal government uh, since 9-11. We need to update our privacy laws. They date from the 1970s. Uh, we need to ensure that access to this kind of information really is based on a reasonable predicate, a, a basis to believe that there's some sort of wrongdoing and that it can't simply be done on a whim. And I think we do need some reasonable controls on the on the gathering of the information to, to begin with. Yeah, but in wrongdoing, I mean, the uh, journalists who were being targeted here were not accused of any wrongdoing. Uh, there was no crime that was being investigated. And yet you had this secret government unit pulling all sorts of secret records not available to the public in government databases about their personal lives. I mean, I think it's an illustration of just how easy it is for officers to do this without any basis for believing that anybody's violated the law. So there, you know, and I think what is lost sometimes, you know, there have been some changes in DOJ policy around using compulsory process of so subpoenas and warrants and and you know, court-ordered um, you know, disclosure of information against journalists. Uh, but what we forget sometimes is that there's already this ocean of information that's, that's available on journalists that, that uh, doesn't need to be accessed using compulsory process. So border crossing information, information that is obtained because someone crosses a border, and it doesn't even have to have a nexus to the border. Uh, you know, when we cross the border, they can officers can search your smartphone or your laptop without any basis for believing you've done anything wrong without any suspicion. You know, Hugh, I, I um, read about that in this piece and I looked into it a little bit. It, this is the called the Domex program, I, I think. And I found it astonishing that the government can, that law enforcement can essentially remove everything from your smartphone and put it in their files and then presumably share it uh, with other government agencies. And how is that not you know, they can't just walk into your home without a warrant, right? They can't search your car without probable cause. So how is this not a, a violation of, of your Fourth Amendment rights? Or I guess you would argue it is, but the law hasn't caught up with that. Absolutely. I mean, this is, a, this is an issue that colleagues and I at the ACLU have litigated. We brought a case on behalf of uh, numerous U.S. citizens whose devices, smartphones and laptops were searched at the border upon re-entry to the United States without any suspicion of wrongdoing or, of course, without a warrant. And that case, we got a great ruling in the district court, but ultimately we were unsuccessful that was reversed on appeal. And so the, the state of the law as it stands is, uh, you know, Customs and Border Protection can take your phone when you're re-entering the United States and they can, they can suck up everything that's on there. They can put it into their massive databases, including predictive algorithmic risk assessment databases, share it widely. And of course, you know, th there's more there on your phone then could be gleaned from a very thorough search of your home. You know, there's location information, et cetera. I mean, I, I don't have to go on. There's just such a wealth, an astonishing wealth of information there. And so far, courts have not seen fit to rule that, that those kinds of searches are subject to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement. And that's, we think that's wrong. We, we think that ultimately 
those protections should extend to to the border as well. The report that just came out today focused on uh, the way uh, Customs and Border Protection, a, a subunit of it, was engaging with a group of journalists. Is there reason to believe or that it's more than just journalists? Is there the possibility that kind of any average American who happens to come into contact with someone from a government agency who has access to these databases could also be subject to this? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the story alludes to that where, you know, I think Rambo himself says there really are no guidelines, there are no policies on vetting. So whenever they're going to meet with somebody, they just run their names um, because why not? And so, again, the lack of any kinds of policy controls on access to this just ocean of information that's a major issue, uh, certainly the lack of accountability for using this information in ways that it has no nexus to an, uh, you know, a credible allegation of criminal wrongdoing, another major problem. Uh, but this isn't the only time we've seen this. There have been other instances recently where this kind of action against journalists at the border has really shown just how lax CBP's policies are, how the federal government doesn't have kind of a comprehensive regime for controlling this kind of activity. So certainly we have every reason to believe that they simply do this anytime they're they're going to engage with someone or they have any interest in someone. Yeah. I mean, Jana Winter's story does say that in this particular program, it wasn't just journalists. It was also congressional staff members, NGO workers, um, government officials who were being targeted as well. Although the journalists, uh, you know, obviously that that, that touches us. That so hit, hits home it, with us. Hits <laughs> home with us. And so, you know, you talk about policy and guidelines. Uh, you know, the Merrick Garland Justice Department has put sharp restrictions restrictions on pulling the phone records of journalists in leak investigations, which is a step in the right direction for press freedom groups. But CPB, Homeland Security, total silence. In fact, you know, just today, the AP has written a letter to Secretary Mayorkas at Homeland Security demanding an explanation for what happened here and what he's doing about it. I emailed uh, his press team for comment and, and, and they did not immediately respond. One, one thing that leapt out at me is the Inspector General report makes referrals for criminal investigations here, which were declined by justice. But it's not clear that they laid out what new policies and guidelines should govern this sort of activity. Absolutely. Classic OIG. Um, And I think that, again, you know, there's- Isn't that their job? Shouldn't they have done so? I, I sometimes, I, you know, I, I'm frustrated because the, the inspectors general tend to define their mandates in ways that are pretty limited, right? They look at the, the, the very narrow question of whether an agency-specific rule or policy or procedure has been violated. They tend not to sort of expand the lens and think, well, what, what else do we have to think about here, you know, just more broadly about whether or not this, you know, displays or reflects a deeply disturbing trend within our agency, even if it doesn't violate some explicit policy. The other thing that you mentioned, though, and I want to emphasize this, is that one agency, this is a classic example of one agency having potentially helpful guidelines. You know, the DOJ has now been sort of instituting some controls, like I say, on using compulsory process. 
but <laughs> in the post 9-11 era, there are so many ways that agencies can use the more expansive authorities or relaxed policies of other agencies and simply gather the information, you know, through information sharing agreements they have with those, those agencies. Uh, so uh, we really, you know, we, we, this whole whack-a-mole approach to uh, improving our policies or our guidelines isn't going to be enough. We need a more comprehensive regime that places limits across the federal law enforcement apparatus before we can make progress. Well, Hugh, 50 years ago, kind of in the wake of a, a comparable series of revelations about a kind of extensive government eavesdropping and kind of stalking of uh, its citizens, Congress reacted, formed the Church Committee. It led to pretty significant revisions to the way we conduct intelligence operations. Is there anything like the Church Committee on the horizon? Can you imagine anyone kind of grabbing this bull by the horns? I mean, I would love to see that. And I, I do appreciate that there have, there have been instances in the past where this kind of what can seem like an inexorable tide toward, you know, fewer or more relaxed standards on these issues. It, it doesn't have to necessarily be that way, but it, it is hard to see in this environment right now who's, who's our standard bearer. I mean, I saw something from, you know, Senator Wyden. There are those on the, the, the Hill who, who I think, you know, have background in these issues and can carry them forward. But we really do need um, much more uh, aggressive congressional involvement on this to not only to investigate these specific instances, but to look into these broader, more structural deficiencies that give rise to them. And that's where I'm not necessarily seeing a lot of action. I'm not seeing a push toward a new Privacy Act for the 21st century that, that, that addresses these issues in a comprehensive way. Hugh, at the start of this conversation, you talked talked about the explosive growth of these databases post 9-11. And I, th- I think in a sense, just the fact that there are so many of them with so much information in them, that just encourages abuse, uh, given human nature and given the lack of controls. I-, I want you to address one of them, because in our story, these reporters and presumably members of Congress and their staffs and others, their names were being put into something called the uh, Terrorist Screening Database or the TSDB. And I, I think, if I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly, after, yeah, at the time of 9-11, there were just very small numbers of people in that database. And now, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about well over a million people. And to be clear, this this database didn't exist as of the time of 9-11. There really was no formal watch listing system in place at that time. Although before 9-11, we, we have sort of early antecedents of the, of the kind of watch listing system we're seeing today. During the, the, the Cold War, there were various lists that were used against alleged communist sympathizers, you know, travel controls, stigma associated with those. And in retrospect, we really come to repudiate those and view them as kind of a shameful chapter in American history. But we have something that is far worse and far more aggressive in place today that is, you know, visiting far greater harms on a far larger number of people. Like I said, a million and a half at last count. Sometimes we get these these updated numbers from the the government. But I think people don't appreciate the extent to which this, this watch listing system of which the TSDB is the heart can really ruin people's lives, not only through its formal consequences, you know, the invasive screening every time you try to fly, you know, intrusive searches at the border, including, you know, digital device searches, but the stigma, the isolation that can come with being labeled a suspected terrorist, it's absolutely isolating and debilitating for the people who are on it. 
And there's really no meaningful redress system in place that will enable people to contest this placement, clear their names and get off the list. So it's essentially a very low threshold for placement. And then you can be on there indefinitely because you don't have a meaningful opportunity to correct whatever misplaced suspicion or errors gave rise to the listing in the first place. One of the things Operation Whistlepig was doing beyond, you know, tapping into phone records and travel records is it was pulling social media posts of um, journalists and uh, and other targets. And, you know, I was thinking about that. To me, you know, we've seen more and more of that. And at first blush, it does, well, more than at first blush, it seems kind of creepy to me. On the other hand, we know that the Justice Department, the FBI, has been very aggressive about doing that in the January 6th investigation, for good reason, to try to identify who these people were and who they were communicating with. What's uh, the ACLU's uh, views on the government um, snooping into the public social media postings of people of interest to it? Well, it's a it's a major concern. And we're actually in the middle of litigating a, a, a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit on this very subject. We've been doing this for years now. It is a technique in which the government is investigating, investing a great deal of time and resources and especially sort of technology. And we think that just overall agencies like the FBI kind of have it backwards now or upside down. They start with online speech. They're they're surveilling, they're crawling the social media web, looking for speech that they find suspicious in some way, or, you know, and, and then they're on the basis of that speech that they're investigating people. Um, they send informants after them, they use undercovers. If you look at the FBI's indictments, they, they especially in the national security realm, they very often start with social media. And from there, they, they then proceed to an investigation. What's your view about the way they've been conducting the January 6th investigation? Our view is that in general, they should be starting with actual suspicion of criminal conduct. At that point, perhaps it's reasonable to look at someone's social media, but using the speech itself as the basis for the investigation gets it, gets it upside down, it gets it backwards because speech is not a reliable predictor of criminal conduct. Certainly a lot of speech is out there. We understand that federal law enforcement will query that, they'll look at that. But when you're using some, someone's speech or association as the reason why you're gonna start looking at them, then you're chilling that speech, you're, you're, you're impacting people's ability to speak freely, um, it has a real dampening effect on freedom of expression. And it is part of that process, like I say, of, of people isolating from each other. Once they see that someone is the subject of suspicion on social media, that person is, is, is isolated and, and, and really becomes kind of an outcast. So I think, you know, we, we have major concerns about whether this is done in an arbitrary or discriminatory fashion and its effect on freedom of information, freedom of expression worldwide. Has there been any change in approach to these databases and their use in investigations between the Trump administration and the current one? Not that I can discern. The massive aggregation of information, you know, is a multi-decade venture that spans the administrations of both parties. You know, one we were discussing earlier, the watch listing system, or the, 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 which is the sort of the TSDB is the main database there. But there's a new kind of generation of databases and uh, techniques that I kind of consider sort of next gen watch listing. And that, that involves the use of these kind of predictive algorithmic approaches to try to identify people who the government thinks might be higher risk. And we think that this is done in a really 
unreliable way. Uh, the center of that whole effort is called the automated targeting system. And I'd be shocked if the ATS was not queried and used here in this instance as well, because it's become sort of the, the next generation way that the government tries to identify people it finds suspicious. Well, all of that is truly grounds for us to be disturbed on many fronts. <laughs> and um, we want to thank you for alerting us to these concerns. And we'll definitely want to um, stay in touch uh, as we hopefully learn more about what our government has been trying to learn about us. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.